Hello and welcome to Organs Talk, the podcast by the Boehringer Ingelheim and Lilly Alliance. My name's Professor Merlin Thomas, and today I'll be hosting Organs Talk, the podcast episode on Beneath Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction. It's my pleasure to be talking to you today from Melbourne, Australia, where I'm an endocrinologist and diabetologist working in diabetic complications. But I'm also joined by some eminent experts, including cardiologist Professor Carolyn Lamb from Singapore. Hello, Carolyn. Hi, Merlin. And endocrinologist Dr. Alice Chung from Canada. Hello, Alice. Hi, Merlin. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about heart failure, not the heart failure that you see after a heart attack where a lot of the heart is impaired and the ejection fraction is reduced. But we're going to talk about people with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction so that their echo says their heart is working functionally normally, but they're not functionally normal at all. And it turns out that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction not only is a big problem, but actually is the biggest cause of heart failure in the world particularly patients with obesity, hypertension, and, of course, type 2 diabetes. And in these individuals, they're really limited by their heart failure. The big issue for them, of course, is that it means that they end up in hospital from decompensation or in the morgue from decompensation as well. But the real question that we're going to look at is what happens before that? How do we recognize it? How should we recognize it in our everyday clinical practice? And what should we do about it? Carolyn, you see a lot of people in your wards with heart failure, but is there something that we should be asking them about their symptoms when they first see us for regular review that would tip us off that maybe they've got heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Merlin, that's a really great question, and I think it opens the door to emphasize that the symptoms and signs, whether it's heart failure with preserved or reduced ejection fraction, are exactly the same. You see, the syndrome of heart failure is, by definition, just that, a clinical syndrome defined by typical signs and symptoms, and both HEFPEF and HEFREF have this clinical syndrome. They're part of the same family. And what are these typical symptoms and signs? Well, it would be breathlessness on exertion or even at rest when it gets bad. It would be increasing fatigue, swelling of the legs, what we call orthopnea, which is difficulty lying flat at night, nocturnal dyspnea, which is getting up in the middle of the night with breathlessness. And these are symptoms shared, once again, by heart failure, whether or not there's a preserved or reduced ejection fraction. And then the signs are always there as well, which is rails in the lungs, an elevated jugular venous pressure, a hepatojugular reflex, uh, things that we were, you know, taught in medical school to look out for. I think the main issue, though, is that HEFPEF tends to be a disease of the elderly. And the minute we talk about symptoms and signs and say it's just breathlessness and fatigue, I think many people, even here now listening or in the room, might say, hmm, I think I've experienced that before. And that's the problem. It's the non-specificity of these symptoms and signs on which we rely on to actually make the clinical diagnosis. 
Alice, do you find in the patients that you see, it, it's pretty obvious who's got heart failure or, or do you think it's silent that you have to actually try and find it by actively asking those questions about orthopnea or problems with the shortness of breath on, on exercise? Do you have to go digging for it or, or are they usually forthcoming? As I sit here and I listen to what Carolyn just said, I was thinking to myself, how many heart failures have I missed, frankly, in my diabetes clinic? Because the reality is that I, I will ask people about uh, shortness of breath. I ask people about chest pain, which would not be part of it, but I ask them about shortness of breath. And invariably, many will say, yeah, you know, when I walk a certain amount, I sort of get short of breath. And how often have I chalked that up to being out of shape or related to being uh, overweight or having obesity uh, and then saying, okay, well, you know, it's just because you don't exercise that often. So if you did that more often, you would get back in shape. Uh, so I often wonder how many sort of more actually wouldn't be subclinical anymore. It would actually be clinical heart failure, but maybe a little milder that I've actually brushed off as something else. And, and I don't think it's just myself. I suspect many of us may in fact be guilty of that. And our patients as well, also thinking, oh, I'm just out of shape. And if I just exercise a bit more, it'll get better. Therefore, to answer your question, Merlin, I, I think we need to ask the right questions. Even when we do, we need to be thinking about heart failure as a potential. Alice, if I may add, we do have data that show that one in six patients who are elderly and present in primary care with breathlessness have unrecognized heart failure. And that's the tragedy of it all, that 80% of heart failure diagnoses are made following an unscheduled hospitalization when half could have been made earlier as an outpatient because patients have been having symptoms for up to five years. So it's definitely not just us. <laughs> I think it's happening everywhere that we just need to have perhaps a higher index of suspicion. Absolutely. So don't just put it down to the fact that they're overweight or uh, unfit. For example, if they're elderly and have a cough or wheeze or, or orthopnea and they're saying, oh, it's just my lungs. Actually, it could be heart failure. And particularly in the setting of individuals with diabetes, increasingly it, it is a major reason for them becoming short of breath and ultimately leading to problems like hospitalization. So we've mentioned diabetes. Is there anything else that we need to be, you know, red flags that we see in individuals that are short of breath that said, you know, this is likely to be heart failure in terms of comorbidities? Carolyn, you mentioned increased age as well. Are there any other red flags that we should really be thinking this shortness of breath is probably heart failure? Yes, actually, there are. That's a great question. So for a long time, we equated HEPPETH with the condition affecting mainly elderly women with long-standing hypertension, especially if they start having atrial fibrillation. It's the kind of comorbidities that happen together as a bundle. However, more recently, we're also recognizing that younger individuals can also have HEFPEF, especially if they are overweight, obese, and have diabetes. In my mind, there are these two patterns, right? It's the elderly hypertensive lady and the younger obese or diabetic individual. These are the patterns that we have seen. Alice, do you have a favorite patient comorbidity that says, oh, this is likely to be heart failure if someone has shortness of breath? 
That's a tough one, Merlin. I, I have to say because the very things that Carolyn just mentioned would be 90% of the patients that I see. <laughs> so it really, it's on the differential almost for everybody, right? And, and, and it's funny that the patients who have a history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, who've had previous myocardial infarctions, et cetera, I remember to think about those. And they, uh, perhaps a little more classically, would have something like a HEF-REF, a reduced ejection fraction. It's those who do not have that CAD history, that coronary artery disease history, is probably the ones that I'm missing. Uh, so, you know, I, I think this podcast is making me more anxious than perhaps it should <laughs> as I think about uh, the things I'm missing. Well, I've got a favorite risk factor. My favorite one, of course, is renal dysfunction. And so if I see someone with diabetes and renal dysfunction, almost certainly they've got cardiac dysfunction as well. And so I can really use that. And when you add renal dysfunction, you either mean a reduced GFR, increased albuminuria, or indeed anemia. Those sort of features really tell me that not only the kidneys are in deep trouble, um, which we'll talk about in another episode, but also that the heart is probably contributing to their shortness of breath. And certainly I'd be going forward to have a closer look at their heart. Ashley Merlin, I think you hit on a really important point there. So we've actually taken a look at patients with diabetes who have, have PEF, and compared to patients who have a reduced ejection fraction heart failure and diabetes, those with preserved ejection fraction tend to have more microvascular disease in other organ beds. So you're absolutely right that if a patient has diabetes and already has nephropathy or proteinuria, we've shown the data. They're much more likely to have HEFPEF. The same applies though if you're already seeing microvascular disease in the eyes, or if the patient has peripheral neuropathy, for example. I think the idea here is remember that heart failure is not just a macrovascular disease manifestation in diabetes. It's not only about having a big myocardial infarction. In fact, those tend to get, as you said before, reduced ejection fraction heart failure. What we're talking about, actual microvascular involvement of the heart and manifesting as HEFPEF. So Alice, tell me, if we're going to send this patient away who's short of breath for an echo, and it comes back with showing that they've got HEFPEF, that they've got a preserved ejection fraction, but they've got heart failure, how bad is it for this patient? How prognostically bad is it for them? Well, it's certainly not good. And uh, we know that when people have been diagnosed with heart failure, that the prognosis is poor is a strong word, but it probably would be a justifiable one. And certainly if one has presented with uh, hospitalization or urgent heart failure visits, then that's even more so because that would be decompensated heart failure. Uh, so yeah, I would say that the prognosis is poor and it is imperative that we do everything we can to improve that prognosis, although frankly limited at this point in the HEF-PEF world. In the HEF-REF world, as Carolyn can speak to much better than I, that there are definite pillars of therapy and, and strong treatments that have been shown to be beneficial. But in the HEF-PEF space, not a whole lot yet. And, and that is unfortunate. So we really need to be thinking about how to prevent people from getting in that category to begin with. 
Carolyn, how do you tell someone that they've got heart failure, but their ejection fraction is preserved? You must do it every single day. You know, is there a good way to tell someone? I mean, obviously it's prognostically bad, but how do you tell someone that their heart is failing, but it's preserved? It's one of these really difficult quandaries because of course, preserved means that things are okay, but of course things are not okay. As, as Alice just said, how do you communicate preserved ejection fractions to patients? <laughs> Matt, that's a tough question, Merlin. It's never easy to tell a patient that they have something that's failing. So in the first place, the whole term heart failure, many in our circles have said, you know, could we please find a different name for it? But we have to first explain to the patient they have heart failure. And here, I actually draw an analogy to kidney failure because for some reason, everybody understands kidney failure, but nobody seems to really get what heart failure is. I tell them heart failure is an organ failure, just like kidney failure is an organ failure. So it's a serious condition. And then we talk about treatments being available for some types of heart failure. And that is where I go into. Right now, we classify heart failure according to ejection fraction. And ejection fraction just means the pump function of the heart. When the pump function is really low, uh, we call that heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And we like to separate them out because many trials have been shown to have drugs that work for them. And then there is this entity where the pump function actually looks okay, but there's still heart failure. And then I draw an analogy. If you've got a swimming pool and the pump function is not working, it's very easy to understand why the pool would overflow. But imagine that the suction of that swimming pool entire pump function isn't working either. So it's not just the forward pump that matters, but the suction to get the water to turn over. Imagine if that is not working, no matter how hard the forward pump function is still working, that swimming pool is still going to overflow. And when water overflows into the lungs, that's when you as a patient with heart failure will feel breathless and will start to see swelling in the rest of your body. And so that's how I explain that you can still have heart failure <laughs> despite having a preserved ejection fraction, and at the same time, really try to convey that it's a serious condition. And here, if you don't mind me expanding a bit on the prognosis, you see, we know that a patient with heart failure has a prognosis on average that is as bad as many of the cancers we know. And it's really important that they therefore take the condition seriously. We know that the death rate is about 10% per year, so that in five years, 50% on average are dead. Now, in HEFPEF, that death rate is slightly lower, but that's like 7 to 8% per year, and that's not by any means even close to just having hypertension or diabetes or the risk factors without heart failure. It's many-fold higher. And then death aside, the real burden with this condition is hospitalizations and recurrent hospitalizations that are just as high with HEFREF or HEFPEF. And so I just want to prepare the patient and the family that it's going to be a 
long road and and if there are treatments we will be insisting that they they get them because this is quite a severe and serious disease i love your um swimming pool analogy i'm in australia we have lots of swimming pools here and if the pump fails generally the swimming pool turns a shade of green which does make me think of of heart, heart failure <laughs> or, 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 other, or other kinds of things but yeah that's a lovely lovely analogy alice so we've now heard already that it's a complete disaster having heart failure, that it's a clearly a, a burden for the patients and prognostically a, a very bad sign. So once we get that patient and we get that echo back saying they've got heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, what should we do? So first of all, I imagine we do some investigations to try and work out what's going on and see whether we need to do other things. What kind of investigations are we supposed to be doing for patients with heart failure? I think one would be looking from a uh, potential etiology perspective. So if they have been investigated for ischemic causes, and that would be something that, uh, if they have not been, then that would be something that would be worthwhile doing, assessing all of the other cardiac risk factors. But a lot of those things should have already been done as part of one's routine follow-up of someone living with uh, diabetes, uh, checking renal function, as has already been discussed. And then in terms of following that kind of individual, there are uh, certain blood tests that could be done to help assess the heart failure piece of it such as uh, BNP, for example, or, or a natriuretic peptide. Having said that, though, as an endocrinologist and where I work in Canada, it actually is not something that's successful outside of a hospital setting, uh, so not something that I would ever order as an endocrinologist. So I think for me in diabetes clinic, when someone's been diagnosed with heart failure, my job is very much to help address every other risk factor uh, from a cardiovascular perspective and also uh, metabolic and trying to optimize all of that and then uh, making sure that this person's already connected with a cardiologist or a heart failure team because I think the team approach is uh, quite important in heart failure as a chronic disease as it is in the diabetes space. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important, that team approach, because when patients get complicated, it really can't be managed on your own and you really need the resources and the logarithms and the understanding that comes from um, not just clinical specialists, but educators and nurses that are all working towards the goal of keeping your patient healthy and alive. Carolyn, We've talked about the team approach from an endocrinologist's point of view, but obviously when you find someone with heart failure, if you want a cardiologist involved, often you need a referral to that cardiologist. And if we're saying that so many of our patients have got heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, who do you want to see referred to a cardiologist? Because we could overwhelm you. We've got enough patients with diabetes in the world and enough of them with renal impairment and cardiac impairment to fill your wards hundredfold. Who do you want to see going to a cardiologist? Well, me personally, I would say all. <laughs> because, you know, I, I am just passionate oh, you'll never about be out of this business, condition. No. That's right. <laughs> you know, especially given that you know, it predominantly affects women and we don't... Uh, really have a specific treatment that 
improves mortality and outcomes in this group, it's become a lifetime mission basically for me to understand it better. And so I would frankly welcome all referrals, but I, I totally uh, see the point of your question, Merlin. It's a very, very good one. You see, the problem now globally is I think only those with more severely reduced ejection fraction, perhaps patients who are seen to be transplant candidates and people like that, who are referred to cardiologists. And so the fact of the matter is that the majority of patients with HEPPEF are not being seen by cardiologists and are being managed by a whole group of wonderful uh, physicians, such as geriatricians, diabetologists, general practitioners, um, and, and the list could go on, nephrologists, <laughs> and, and the list could go on forever. I really think everyone having an awareness is good. And frankly, at the end of it, it's a lot of common sense in how we manage them at the moment. Alice really beautifully pointed out the most important thing, which is you try to look for a precipitant and treat it or an etiological factor and treat it. And uh, among those that I've often been caught out on are things like uncontrolled hypertension. I'm sure you'd be familiar with Merlin, you know, renal artery stenosis and things like that, that give a huge sudden load of, of blood pressure and throw the patient into acute pulmonary edema. So, you know, look out for things like that. For atrial fibrillation, that's another common one with rapid ventricular rates. Those can also precipitate the heart failure decompensation. And that there's an axiom. I sometimes believe in it and maybe not fully, but they say to treat HEPPEF, treat the comorbidities. I think it's important, but I think it's not the full answer. The other thing that everyone should be aware of is uh, fluid management and decongestion still remains the cornerstone, exactly as you would with any other patient with heart failure, regardless of ejection fraction. We should decongest these patients. It keeps them out of hospital. It sure makes them feel a lot better. I'd love a cardiologist to treat all of my patients. I'd love <laughs> you to treat all of my patients. I don't think that's going to happen, though. I think diabetes with 500 million people globally and you know so many of them have got comorbidities obesity hypertension renal impairment so many of them are seeing alice in her diabetes clinics i'm not sure a cardiologist can solve those problems and i i wonder whether the future is going to be that the endocrinologist is going to and the primary care physician is going to become a the surrogate cardiologist based upon the the expertise that you provide alice you were saying before that that you've been educated by the cardiologists i think in the future do, do you feel like becoming a cardiologist too i think you are already aren't you <laughs> well, a cardiologist, nephrologist, a lot, lot of ologists, uh, which is something that uh, is inevitable because diabetes is a multi-system, multi-organ chronic disease. And in other episodes, we've talked about the interconnectivity of all of the different systems, and uh, including the metabolic, cardiac, renal, and and inevitably, we're all going to need to get comfortable with our colleagues' areas of uh, expertise, maybe not to the same level of expertise, of course, but we're all going to need to become closer friends and colleagues and, and better understanding of each other's uh, specialties. I think the exciting part of that is that the cardiac studies that have been done in the last number of years have really provided the impetus for not only 
cardiologists providing care, but also taking that care through to the real world practices is, is in primary care. And what's really impressed me is that heart failure is now being thought of as a primary outcome in trials. We're seeing it because people are looking to say, hey, it's making such a big difference to people's lives. Hey, it's making such a big prognostic effect. Let's do some studies on heart failure to see you know, what we can do. And I'm really encouraged by the recent treatment studies, um, particularly with SGLT2 inhibitors and also the um, mineralocorticoid receptor agonists, who have both shown really promising effects that in patients with heart failure. And we're really excited to see what the future will hold specifically for patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. So just some final questions. I'll, I'll, one final question for, for you, Alice. Imagine that you are managing diabetes in 10 years time. What do you think heart failure management in your practice will look like in 10 years time after all of the things that are going on at the moment? Well, what I'm hoping is that Carolyn will have less work to do in 10 years time in that if we uh, implement therapies that we now are lucky enough to have early, earlier in people living with type 2 diabetes, that we will effectively help to reduce the burden of heart failure, reduce the burden of kidney disease, and of course, other complications of diabetes itself, such that our other specialty colleagues will actually have less work to do because we, we already have the data for uh, some of these therapies in terms of reducing uh, hospitalization for heart failure, reducing kidney outcomes, uh, reducing uh, MACE or major adverse cardiovascular events. So, so we, we know that that exists. So I'm certainly hoping that in 10 years time, it will become routine practice at which point there will be less of all of these significant complications occurring so that I will diagnose heart failure in fewer and fewer of my patients in diabetes clinic. And Carolyn, what do we have to do to keep our patients out of your cardiac wards in the next 10 years? What do we do to make your life a little bit easier? What do we have to do in our practices to help you out? You know, I actually share Alice's dream, and I really believe in preventive cardiology or preventive medicine in general. I think that recognizing the patient at risk and treating their risk factors before the onset of heart failure is just so, so critical. And furthermore, recognizing heart failure early so that um, disease-modifying therapies can be initiated in these patients is another one that's so extremely important to prevent the hospitalizations and death. We have medications that can do that now. And so it's so critical to recognize heart failure in the first place, recognize it as a debilitating condition for the patient as a huge public health problem. And that something we should be able to diagnose by the bedside based on clinical signs and symptoms. Thank you, Professor Carolyn Lam and Dr. Alice Cheng. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Organs Talk, the podcast by the Boehringer Ingelheim and Lilly Alliance. This episode was Beneath Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, where I, Professor Merlin Thomas, was joined by Professor Carolyn Lam and Dr. Alice Cheng. 
Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode.